and welcome to Innovation Matters. It is the innovation podcast by Lux Research. I'm your host, Anthony Schiavo. I'm joined by my co-hosts, uh, Kartik Sobramian, who is back, back from vacation. Uh, he's looking healthy. He's looking refreshed. You can't see this, but he's got, you know, he's got the big sunglasses. He's got the big, you know, vacation hat. Um, you know, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> still, I, still I don't know, I don't know what the shirt. other, <laughs> I don't know what the visual signifiers of being on vacation are other than like his skin tone. Um, but he's, he's looking wonderful. He's looking relaxed. And uh, we've also got Mike Holman here as well. And uh, hey. hey, it's, uh, it is the very last day of November, right? November 30th. Um, is that correct? Do we have a November 31st? Anyway, it's definitely November 30th. It's the first day <laughs> of COP. That is the UN Conference of Parties. Um, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that because this is the only podcast, I'm sure, that is going to talk about the UN Conference of Parties and what it means for, <laughs> what it means for the future. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, Kartik, how have you been? Um, it's been? It's been lonely without you here. Yeah, things uh, are much better this week than last week because uh, when I was in uh, India, India lost the World Cup final, which uh, yeah bummed. The, uh, the, yeah. the stunning conclusion of the arc, the the long running <laughs> <laughs> innovation matters cricket arc is that India. Who did they lose to? Australia. They lost to Australia. Dang, aren't yeah? Wasn't there a big scandal? No, it was the British, not the Australians, right? Who? Who were this isn't like the the olden days, but they like they they pitched the wrong way or something. They were pitching like uh, they were bowling. I'm not aware of right at the knees, and I don't know. That's all. I, I only know like three things about cricket. Most of them you've told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not aware of that. I know that the Australians use sandpaper to uh, uh, you know change the way the ball moves and stuff, and then they got caught doing it. Like they got caught cheating on camera and then the captain cried in the press conference it was very funny is but, this uh, is this this year or like uh, no this was like in how, 2019 2019 okay so but, what's the vibe when india loses is it like a philly eagles type situation where people are like burning cars or like what what's what's the general vibe uh that has happened before, but people don't burn cars, but they like break television sets and stuff. That's happened before. <laughs> but uh, this time it was very somber. Like I just could sense, uh, you know, like zero energy among people. I remember two companies, I think, gave the next day off so that people can, <laughs> you know, like uh, get back to the, to being their normal selves. So that was quite fun. But uh, yeah, good to be back and uh, good to discuss uh, uh, trends and innovations uh, in sustainability. You know, one thing that's not sustainable is burning couches. That was always what we did at Virginia Tech. Whenever we won a big game or lost a big game, people would just, there would just be burning couches everywhere. I remember when we beat Ohio Really State. rough for your carbon footprint. It's not good for your carbon footprint. That, that's my advice to any young college student. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just, I guess I would just say, if you are planning on celebrating um, any major win or loss, do so in a way that you know results in in ne negative carbon emissions. Maybe plant a tree, or alternatively, um, if you're in Australia and you want to celebrate <laughs> this win, we have an incredible <laughs> we have an incredibly innovative solution for you, which is bite you can a kangaroo. Beat up a kangaroo instead. You can, you can literally punch <laughs> a kangaroo, and this will this will save uh, 
This will save the planet. Mike, can you give us the lowdown on, on this this story which you brought to my attention? <laughs> uh, yeah, apparently, you know this this we wanted to talk about it not just because it's funny, but because it sort of ties into the the whole theme around carbon credits. Um, and I guess there's some projects in Australia that have been trying to claim carbon credits based on kangaroo control, um, and you know, a, a, a control over kangaroos and other other grazing animals to be to be livestock and stuff. To be to be fair, but uh, yeah, the idea is that um, if you keep kangaroos off certain areas of land and other grazing animals, then they you will have more plant growth, uh, more trees will grow in those, those areas. Um, and that you can claim carbon credits based on all of the carbon that those trees will sequester as they grow. Now the, uh, <laughs> the researchers, what's, what's, the net, what's the net impact of this in, in how many, how many kangaroos do we have to punch to stop climate change? <laughs> well, I, 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 like negative kangaroos, because it doesn't, it doesn't actually work. There's this, this group of <laughs> academics from Australia who are pointing out that, you know, one, it, the, the, a lot of the land that this is being, claimed for is sort of like arid scrubland that you're you're not really going to get a lot of trees growing on this area anyway right? kangaroos or no and that <laughs> to in fact to the extent that that kangaroos or other animals do graze on this land you might actually get more forest growth <laughs> because uh they eat the small plants and undergrowth and you know stuff like that and that actually opens up more room for you tend to get more uh what's the term for it it's like woody densification or something like that they say so it's Dang. um so this was a, sort of a particular particularly comical example uh of it but it uh yeah yeah that's awesome um so australians we're revising our stance uh, the official Innovation Matters uh, advice punching. to Australians is do not punch a kangaroo. Um, and if you do punch a kangaroo, know that you are contributing to global climate change. Just like the people who have flown, uh, I think 70,000 or 80,000 people have flown this year uh, to the 28th Conference of Parties, um, which is, of course, the big... Uh, climate meeting every year um, it is being held I want to say in uh, the UAE this year correct um, yeah Dubai Dubai um, Dubai of course notable champion of of climate change um, of doing climate change I, sh I should clarify <laughs> not not of stopping climate change uh, and I mean uh, <laughs> what is what is there to say? this feels like history repeating itself as you know first is tragedy and then is farce right we had cop 26 it was this big moment of like sort of ambition but also i think even at that time recognition that we weren't doing enough right um and now two years later we have cop 28 which is unabashedly <laughs> we've, we've given you know the chair of cop to you know this this nation that is like a major contributor to climate change and is extremely dependent on fossil fuels and 
the focus of the meeting is basically how can we continue to have fossil fuels be a part of the uh you know the part of the energy ecosystem as opposed to phasing them out and it's just like it's sort of like i don't know it's 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 painful uh, honestly it, it is farcical right i don't know karthik what do you what do you think about this i know this is something that you had wanted to to talk about yeah, I mean, it's uh, quite interesting. Uh, I mean, even COP27 last year was all about, in my opinion, uh, Africa's agenda to talk about uh, climate mitigation and, and getting funding for the countries that are actually affected by climate change more than the others because they don't emit so much, not really talking about innovation per se. And this year, I think it's going to talk about why oil and gas is very important in the energy transition, why we cannot get rid of oil. <laughs> and I was at a conference recently where... Uh, Petronas was actually one of the speakers and they said the returns that you get from selling oil is what's actually going to fund your RE projects. Uh, you can't just solely deploy solar and wind and expect that to you know, generate enough revenue to keep deploying more projects moving forward. Um, that said, uh, personally for me, I think not just the UAE, but the Middle East in general, if I were to play devil's advocate to say, hey, there is something positive out of this is that they have a lot of money and they always put innovation at the forefront of whatever they do because optics is very important in the Middle East. How people view the Middle East and how it's becoming a center of innovation is quite fascinating for me. So maybe this could be a COP uh, because COP is actually kicking off today. So we really don't know how it's going to trans transpire. But for me personally, and, and maybe Mike, you may disagree with what I'm saying, but I think a lot of good things could come out of this COP where the Middle East actually do talk about doing a lot in terms of sustainable innovation and actually pumping a lot of funds into sustainable innovation. Yeah, and I think they will. I I, I think there's definitely investments going into hydrogen and 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 uh things like that and in 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 the region and from oil and, and gas companies in 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 general uh i think we are actually starting to see a more significant um you know investments in in some of these these projects from from large players in the industry but the sort of the, the the whole kind of tone and emphasis on like oh we got to figure out how we can keep using using oil i mean it is true obviously like oil isn't going to be going away anytime soon even i think in the most aggressive and and optimistic scenarios and you know in principle yeah you can use that the funding from the the profits from oil and gas products projects to um to fund more of these these green investments um, you know, Shell's made that case as well as, as Petronas, as you referenced. A lot of people in the in the industry have, but you know, there's always going to be the the temptation to, and we've seen it with Shell and others, right, to kind of revert back. Like, well, we're not earning a high enough return on these wind projects, so we we're going to revert to more to more investments in in oil and gas. And I I think that's you know, as much as it is good that the the industry is investing in some of these these greener technologies, and you know they understand that okay, like ultimately the demand for oil is going to be going down, and we need to transition to something to something else. Um, you know, there's a role for the oil and gas companies to play, but I think if they're if they're sort of taking center stage, it's it's not a particularly bullish sign for yeah. uh, for the the kind of climate progress we want to see. 
I mean, isn't the point that Petronas made just sort of wrong in the abstract? Like, there are dedicated companies who only do wind and solar and who entirely fund their growth through wind and solar. So, I mean, Petronas is basically saying, oh, like, you can't get the rate of return you want on wind and solar. That's the issue. It's just that they don't make as much money as the you know, oil and gas projects that Petronas is currently investing in. That that that's it's not that you can't actually fund the growth of wind and solar through wind and solar projects. That's that's imminently doable. They just don't want to do it, right? <laughs> or it just is challenging and, and has you know financial or, or, or stead stock price is getting crushed this year. It's uh the interest rates yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, so interest rates. And, and, I mean, but the, and the thing about the the innovation point that you made, like the innovation is, uh, I don't want to say it's fake, but a lot of the innovation is fake. Like, you know, I, I don't want to be like, you know, for every legitimate sustainability project, there's going to be like two neoms, right, or the lines or whatever, right? Like, um, no, no. Mm-hmm. Sh- I mean, actually, shade on the shade on Neom. We are shading Neom here. Neom is stupid. Like, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, the line is an insane, insane waste of resources, right? Like, and that's just because, like, y- you have this this money, and like, there's a huge amount of money and a huge amount of like resources, right? Sort of tied up in the Middle East, and that's good to put it towards sustainability but that money is not directed through channels that are well managed that are democratically managed that are you know efficiently managed right or that have uh, and, and have legitimate interests in sustainability right they're, they're directed through these channels that have very strong financial interests and very strong interests in maintaining the value in, in, in oil and gas resources right so that money just is very limited in, in the impact it can have, the positive material impact it can have. And it has a big opportunity to have really negative impacts, right? And like putting the dress of, you know, the UN, which is this theoretically democratic or at least, I don't know, sort of international institution on it is, doesn't change that. And in fact, it, you know, it could go further and could even disguise that, that negative you know, those true negative sort of drivers of this, of this money. So that's why I say it's farcical, right? You know, you have this, this institution that clear that has these big goals of, of stopping climate change and of, of equity. And it's like, Oh, and our partner this year is like, you know, the fossil fuel producing like slave labor, <laughs> like maintaining like, you know, Middle Eastern country, right? Like <laughs> it's just ridiculous. But I think the COP28 also goes beyond the Middle East, uh, especially looking at developing nations. Uh, I think they can make the argument, you know, all the developed nations have already burnt enough oil to develop their economies and get to where they are. So it's our turn to do it so that we can also develop our economies. Um, Then the question really becomes, how can they sustainably, and by they, I mean developing countries, uh, how can they sustainably make that switch and and, and develop at the same time? And, And I think that's where the challenge lies and i hope they address that at cop this year yeah i mean it's to, to the actual agenda right yeah that's going to be one of the big i mean it was a big focus at cop 27 and and i think it's going to continue to be here um you know and and 
I don't know if if the 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 having having it in 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 Dubai and uh, is going to be make that much of a difference one way or the other on that, right? To certainly to you know uh, to to some extent the the um, the Emirates are interested to align to more of these these developing nations and. Uh, I could see them being a little bit more aggressive about pushing that than if it was like chaired in Germany or the U S or something, um, something like that. But it's, that's still going to be a tough area to get, to get real commitments and, and, and agreements around. But I think it is important that cop keeps, keeps pushing on that. And, you know, we're not going to get, you know, I I'm very skeptical. We'd get the level of investment that, that that's really needed, but I think to the extent that they can get, uh, you know, whatever level of, of, of commitments they can get from these developed countries to investments in, in these type of infrastructure projects in more developing countries is actually something that has that has a really positive impact, both in terms of, of climate and in terms of, um, uh, you know, general, you know, human rights and, and, and development in, the, in these areas, being able to build out infrastructure in some of these these places. All right, I think I think we've exhausted what we need to say on on cop. I don't know. I'm I'm a cop hater, a cab. That's the official <laughs> Scavo take on this one. It's the it's the uh, uh, the the army we have, not necessarily the 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 uh, the the one we deserve. Uh, and you know, it, to some extent, right? Having having the oil and gas industry inside the tent, uh, uh, rather than than outside of it, is I, I sort of see the strategic rationale for that as as you know a, a bit comical as it is. Um, I know, you know. I mean, I, I see it as well. Like the oil and gas industry, the thing about them is that if you look at the institutions with the skill and capability to actually do large-scale infrastructure construction um it is the oil and gas industry i mean i think we shouldn't have gotten to the point where like for example governments are completely incapable of building large-scale infrastructure like like the american government or whatever like that's bad and we should try and reverse that but given that we're in that situation i understand that those are the institutions that actually have the sort of the actual capability to build this stuff um but i don't have to like it okay you can't make me <laughs> like it. You just can't, and and, and I won't. Um, and that's why we have this podcast for things that I don't like. Speaking of which, <laughs> in today's rundown of things I don't like, we got a really incredible blog post from the uh, American Plastic Makers, which is a, a basically a lobbying arm of the American Chemistry Council a longtime personal nemesis of me and also of uh, just, I don't know, (laughs) people with an interest in sustainability. And honestly, like we're kind of veering into tweet review here because this blog post just isn't that important in the grand scheme of things. Um, But it was a really painful example of like misrepresentation of like academic work or science more generally and i just wanted to kind of highlight it for that reason um basically the blog post there's a study that was published by uh anl uh the argonne national lab about they have a big data tool that they use for life cycle assessments of plastic recycling and particularly plastic pyrolysis this high temperature process of converting 
plastics back into oil. And the blog post, you know, basically said, hey, good news. Um, ANL has found that plastic pyrolysis actually reduces carbon emissions by 18 to 20%. And maybe in some situations, it can go even higher. Um, and framed this as like, hey, the data shows that if you put 5% in uh, pyrolysis oil into a uh, plastic production process, you get a 20% reduction in, in carbon emissions, right? Um, and it's total garbage. Like, <laughs> none of, basically, none of what they claim is really true at all. Um, there's a couple, there's a lot of different things that are that are egregious about it. But um, the few I, I want to flag up here, one is that the The blog represents the data, right, as being we have gotten actual real production data from real operating pyrolysis facilities, right? That's like one of the, the direct lines in the blog, um, which is true, kind of. Um, real production data was theoretically used, but ANL surveyed eight uh, facilities um, and then used that data to make a bunch of projections about the future the future of the uh, technology. So what everything that's referenced is projections about the future state of the technology, which is uh, not how it's represented. Secondly, uh, the blog leaves out the fact that today's pyrolysis technologies all actually increase carbon emissions, which is a pretty big, uh, pretty big, you know, misstep, I would say. And Bit of a then, yikes. A bit of a yikes, a bit of a yikes. And then lastly, um, the vlog basically says, dang, like, this is just at a 5% loading. Imagine what would happen if we increased the loading. It must be crazy. Anyway, I'm sure it's good. <laughs> the actual study does calculate what happens if you go above a 5% loading. And the answer is carbon emissions go up. <laughs> because of both the way that the the mass balancing approach that they use to calculate this uh this carbon emissions reduction like really dramatically amplifies the impact at low loadings and also if you go above five percent loading for process reasons you have to put a bunch more energy into the system like to improve the quality of the oil so it's just like i know I don't even know what to say about it other than just like people are out here just straight up lying on Maine. And it's, it's just, it's just frustrating. Like I get that that's their job, but like, what if, like, what if a politician, like politicians are all morons. That's the thing. Like you just, they just can't be trusted to understand like facts. And like, what if a politician reads this? Like, <laughs> it's so well, crazy. I think it's I mean, it's an interesting study, not just to, you know, hate on the uh, the ACC or um, worry about politicians misunderstanding it, because I mean, it actually is like this. It, it's it's interesting. And this is, is this pretty nuanced. Um, the study is really interesting, right? It's this pretty nuanced take on 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 paralysis where, you know, I think part of the claim is like, OK, as these plants, they, they're not they're they're higher emitting now, but as they as they scale up, the emissions could, could come down and it, it could be to the point where, you know, it becomes like, that's actually reasonable. Um, there it's, you know, not presented in a particularly transparent way in this like blog post, but 
the point, the more interesting point is this, this issue with the, the amount of plastic waste pyrolysis oil that you can actually feed into this process. And the fact that the, when you increase the, the, the amount of waste feedstock basically that you're using in this system, the emissions benefit actually goes down, um, which I think just kind of points to the, the fundamental challenge with this type of chemical recycling, this pyrolysis, right? Which is that the, the quality of the pyrolysis oil is like much lower quality than what you get from, from petroleum. And so you either have to invest a lot of extra effort and extra energy, um, in upgrading it, or, you know, you, you, you just lower your, your yields of quality product that you get out or, or so low, um, that, uh, you know, it, 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 trying to, you can get away with 5% basically without really affecting the process. But, but if you try to go up to 20, you need, you need to do a lot more to get quality product out. Um, and that's, that's kind of the core challenge with this. It's like, go. Oh. And there's a core tension there, which is if you scale the technology, right. To, to get all these improvements. And, and I think it is possible that you could get to the point with enough scale and enough improvement of maturity in the technology that it does actually reduce carbon emissions, right? Um, especially compared to something like incineration or whatever. But to get to that point and to that scale, you are absolutely going to have to be pushing the technology to the level of, um, you know, going well past that 5% mark. Like you can't, the benefits are, are structurally are really the most intense when you're at this low level loading, but to actually get the technology to work, I think you have to go pretty, pretty far past that level. Um, so it's just, there's this very fundamental contradiction there with, with these technologies and, and how they scale. And um, yeah, it's just, don't be, don't be scaling up conventional pyrolysis. I'm, I'm, I'm once again, begging the world not to do this i don't know it's just it was just frustrating to read and frustrating to see like and and there are better ways right like like there was a video we're gonna we're gonna give a little gold star here a little thumbs up to basf who put out a really good marketing video about how they're planning to integrate pyrolysis into this larger scale like recycling infrastructure and like the way it fits and the way it enables other technologies that are very sustainable, like mechanical recycling. Hey, like when you do mechanical recycling, you end up with a lot of other stuff left over. Like, what do you do with that? It's like, oh, if you want to scale mechanical recycling, you need something to absorb this other waste. And it's like, oh, like this is part of an ecosystem that like is useful, is valuable. It's like, oh, there's actually really good, meaningful arguments to be made for this technology. And like people are doing them, making those arguments. And like... <laughs> my nemesis the american chemistry council like steadfastly refuses to even do a good job of like <laughs> lobbying it's just like frustrating it's just like come on guys we can we can do better please yeah i mean with uh pyrolysis and and not to stay too long on this topic uh the one thing i do know is that while i'm not a chemistry expert and i don't follow the pyrolysis space specifically i do know that they use pyrolysis for thermally recycling solar panels and it's not just the carbon emissions that you have to look at. Uh, you always have issues with fluoride emissions and other harmful gases into the atmosphere, which is not good, um, and health hazards. So 
um it has led to the development of different you know low temperature methods that can uh, separate different layers and and recycle different components of a solar panel things like that so i guess innovations have to focus on that side rather than just pyrolysis at this point even if it reduces ghg emissions and and that's why we've seen a lot of like consumer like local level pushback against pyrolysis plants especially large scale ones um yeah, sorry. That's one of the other things that I thought was interesting about that BASF video is they were not only, you know, pointing out how how pyrolysis was complementary with um, with mechanical recycling, but also talking about some of the innovations that they were pursuing to help enable mechanical recycling, right? Like uh, a lot of the energy that is consumed by mechanical recycling is from the washing steps and the plastics. So they were trying to, you know, we've created these additives or cleaning agents that can enable you to wash the plastics with a lower temperature of water. That saves a lot of energy in the process. These are some of the additives that make plastics more easy to mechanically recycle. So, you know, from an innovation standpoint, also that's, that's the other kind of thing. I think it's valuable for those those kind of companies to be to be thinking about is not just like okay we can use pyrolysis oil to to slot into our existing processes but there's also opportunities in enabling other types of recycling uh, to go more efficiently as well i think that plastic waste has been one of the most visible issues of sustainability in the especially the consumer eye but also in the eye of the government corporations over the last four to five years and plastic waste uh, has really become this this hot button issue but it's also become the focus of a lot of government legislation um we've had some guests on this podcast who are focused on plastic reuse um but i really wanted to zoom out because it's been a very a very consequential week for plastic regulation especially in europe um, and we really have the the perfect guest to talk about that with us today. Uh, I'm super delighted to have Yannick Bach, the Zero Pollution Policy Manager from Zero Waste Europe, uh, joining us today on the podcast. Uh, Yannick, how are you? Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Yeah, it's really a pleasure. Uh, Yannick and I is someone who, who I've communicated with uh, many times over the years uh, as we have sort of dealt with these sustainability issues and policy issues and someone who I really have a lot of respect for in terms of their understanding of, of these challenges, especially in Europe. Um, so maybe we can just start, Yannick. You could tell us a little bit about yourself, but also Zero Waste Europe. I think maybe a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with your organization, what it does, and um, you know its goals. So maybe we can start there. Absolutely. Um, so, yep. Yeah, um, so as for Zero Waste Europe, um, we are relatively uh, a new organization. Uh, Formerly, we were established in 2014 uh, via European branch of Gaia. Um, uh, so we, um, we are European network. Um, we have members in, um, in 28 countries. So not only uh, European Union countries, but also uh, some other countries in Europe. And, and so we bring together experts, uh, NGOs and change makers. And, and our goal is very simple, and we, we want to eliminate waste in, waste in our society, um, as our name says, Zero Waste Europe. So that's our, our goal. And, and um, as for me, um, I have been now um, with Zero Waste Europe for about eight years, and my focus is really end of uh, 
end-of-life treatment, uh, mostly. Um, so I work on things that, um, you know, what ha- how to manage things that at the end of its life. Um, I look, work a lot on uh, some of the things uh, such as chemical recycling, uh, but also incineration, landfilling, material recovery. But of course, I, I you know, m- we work as a team here. We are actually 23 staff in, in Brussels. And, uh, and increasingly, our focus is on um, uh, kind of at the upstream uh, because um, it's, it's, it became very clear to us um, if you really want to address the waste generation issue, you need to tackle the, the problems at the, at the beginning and, and not at the very end. So, yeah, that's, 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 that's uh, about me. Awesome. And the, the thing we really brought you on to discuss, which I think is really interesting, is the recent vote uh, in the, um, the EU parliament uh, on the packaging and packaging waste regulation, or PPWR. Um, so as I understand it, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, this is really part of the broader um, sort of, there's there's been the single-use plastic directives, there are these very high-level EU directives around sustainability, the Green Deal. And this is one of the things that has sort of fallen out of that. It is, um, you know, a set of regulations and laws that, more directly dictate what is required in terms of things like waste collection, uh, things like reporting, things like the goals and targets for um, the different, you know, types of plastic uh, packaging waste and packaging waste, but more generally, how the, the countries in the EU actually have to manage these these wastes. And we had this big vote. There were a lot of things, as I understand, a lot of different amendments that were proposed. Um, ultimately we got a mix of some of those. Can you, maybe I'm just curious from the start, you know, zero waste Europe put out a stance basically saying, Hey, we're disappointed. This didn't go far enough. This didn't, this wasn't enough. I guess I'm curious, what were you really looking for? Um, what were the big misses and maybe what were the big successes in the PPWR, uh, vote and and in this, in this legislation? Indeed. First of all, as you said, uh, the packaging and the packaging waste uh, regulation—it's a really big thing for us. Um, honestly, uh, our focus is mo- mostly on the, on the municipal waste, and and packaging is is a is the ma- majority of of that waste in Europe. So it, it's a big thing, yeah. and and um, what is clear is that if you really want to address waste generation, we need to focus on, on the reduction and reuse. There is no other way. In fact, we uh, a couple of months ago, we put out reports which uh, mainly look at the things from the carbon perspective. Uh, and it became very, very clear there is no way we can you know, keep to the carbon budget unless we have a huge reduction in, uh, in uh, uh, plastics put out in, um, on the market, um, we're talking about 50% re- uh, reduction. So coming from there, um, so we, uh, for us, uh, the reuse part was like the most important thing. Yeah? And unfortunately, it didn't go very well um, for, the, for the reuse. But there are still uh, quite a number of good things. So let me just uh, mention a couple of them. So first, first thing, and, and quite surprisingly, 
um, uh, are the waste prevention targets. And so we have uh, uh, now, uh, I think it's the first time actually, because there are no other waste prevention targets anywhere in, uh, in the EU legislation. And so for the first time, we have a, a specific uh, waste prevention targets. So we have a 5% packaging waste reduction by 2030, 10% by 2045 and 15% by 2040. And here we talk about for all the materials. We also have uh, specific waste prevention targets for, for um, plastic packaging. These are even higher. So we have a 10% by 2030 and 20% by 2045. So it's, um, this, is, this, is, um, this is a big win, I would say. And um, um, uh, as I said, um, um, you know, apart from in addition to uh, waste prevention targets, we really wanted to have also reuse targets. So, um, so um, apart from um, kind of phasing out the kind of uh, packaging that is um, what we consider unnecessary, um, you also need to move towards reuse. So, and here, uh, what happened is that um, a lot of the different targets were removed. So, first of all, um, already initially um, in, the, in the Environment Committee, the targets, for example, for food and beverage takeaway were removed. Um, uh, and, and now, um, uh, when it comes to the, uh, the vote in, in the plenary, so where the Parliament uh, agreed on its final kind of so-called position, they, uh, we have a target for... Uh, for non-alcoholic and alcoholic beverages. Um, we're talking about uh, 20% reuse for 2030 and 35% for 2040, for example, for non-alcoholic and 10% for 2030 and 25% for 2040 uh, for uh, alcoholic drinks. But there, uh, several exemptions were introduced. So for example, wine, spirits, and milk uh, were taken out of scope. Um, and these targets could be also achieved by, for example, uh, by enabling re uh, refiller. Um, so yeah, and, and there is also another uh, big um, derogation um, in case, for example, member states um, uh, achieve at least 85% collection rate or recycling rate, um, then they would not need to uh, comply with the reuse targets. So there is a Kind of, there was a competition between recycling and reuse, um, and that, um, and it seems like recycling uh, won. Uh, um, but you know, um, there were also some good things, um, and um, most importantly, also one of the big priorities for us is the depository fund scheme, which also enables reuse. Unfortunately, most of it is currently focused on uh, on single use. But um, most of the amendments that try to kind of weaken uh, or make DRS voluntary were rejected. So that's very, very positive. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, and, and, and that's, for us, it's, it's clear that we need to have a DRS if we want to have a high level of separate collection. Also, um, very interesting is that they uh, agreed on having 90% separate collection target. It's really, really ambitious. And I think uh, um, that's really a positive thing. Uh, um, and well, maybe, yeah, um, uh, just, just also when it comes to, uh, um, because, you know, uh, we will be talking a little bit about uh, afterwards about the recycled content and ways of allocation. 
So um, there was um, um, also some wording uh, um, accepted, which um, allows meeting, for example, uh, recycling content targets by using bio-based plastics. Um, we can uh, we can uh, discuss if this is positive <laughs> or, or negative, but uh, but yeah. Um, but um, it's not over yet. Just to just to just to let you know, I, I mean, because now the next step is really that the Parliament will uh, uh, start negotiations with the European Council, um, which represents the member states, where the final kind of text will be uh, agreed upon. Just just for reference on some of those collection targets you mentioned, eighty five percent or ninety percent. What is that at right now, in 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 the EU? I mean, it depends on the what? type of plastic, I'm sure, but. And, and the yes, as well, it varies a bit. Um, uh, exactly, it's there's a lot of variation. Um, um, and for example, for us, it's very clear that you're not going to be able to have a 90% collection unless you have a GRAs on most of the uh, types of packaging, which unfortunately is not the case. Um, it's it's as I said, it's uh, it, it it will mainly focus on uh, um, kind of uh, soft drinks and uh, and beer, a lot of exemptions. So so yeah. Um, um, we had, uh, the, the, the current uh, collection rates are around, depending on the country, yeah, maybe 50, 60 maximum. For our listeners, first of all, a DRS, that's a deposit return scheme, right? Yes. So you, when you buy a drink or you buy any packaged good, you pay a little extra when you return that, not just recycle it, um, but specifically return it um, with a separate collection, uh, you get that deposit back. And that's something that we have in America. In some limited cases, um, it's it's pretty minimal. I think it's very. I think it's most successful in in Germany, as I understand. Um, certainly, I got uh, yelled at <laughs> the last time I was in Germany. I think for for misallocating uh, a piece of a piece of waste. Uh, my ignorant American self was was not prepared to to manage the the German waste economy. I guess when you look at this this group of potential sort of legislations, um, you talked about the waste reduction targets, you talked about these collection targets, and then you talked about some of the, the specific um, incentives for various what we might call sustainable options, whether that's recycling, whether that's bio-based, whether that's maybe reuse as a sort of a different ecosystem. How... Do you which of these do you think is really going to be most crucial to to driving uh, sustainable outcomes? You know, you, you talked, you, you spoke a lot about the DRS. I'm I'm curious there because one of the things we've heard from say the reuse companies we've had on this podcast is that their goal is to really make it economical to engage in reuse, kind of absent from any legislation, right? And you hear this a lot from some recycling companies as well. Obviously, they're all pushing for favorable legislation, but a lot of them say, oh, we can, we can make the economies work, you know, even if it doesn't. So I guess I'm just curious as to how you see this, you know, where you really see the levers of, of impact being within this, this types of legislation. Um, you, you mean particularly in relation to DRS or? Yeah, you know, DRS yeah. versus something yeah. like the, the waste, uh, you know, the waste reduction yeah. targets. Yeah. What do you so see as we, the biggest opportunity, especially thinking about America, right? Like um, America has none of this type of legislation. You yeah, know, what's yeah. what, what should we be doing, or what's the most impactful thing we could try and do, in, either on a state level or a national level? Here? Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, I mean, we actually um, 
we have developed our own roadmap for um, for plastics as a material. Um, well, maybe it's it's yeah. Maybe we can go beyond plastics, of course. When we talk about packaging in general, um, I I think for for us, uh, well, the packaging is 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 is, a, is a actually one of the like the main waste items, uh, and it's very short lived. You no, know? it it can just be a few hours or a few minutes or um so it's uh, our focus is really on that um and and so what we think is that the packaging actually has a huge potential for for reuse and there's also yeah so we are looking into um, we are currently we have we are working with a number of cities in europe um trying to uh, put in place the infrastructure for for reuse and um, we have you know we are we have also looked into the costs of uh, of doing so and 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 building, for example, nationwide uh, infrastructure for some of the reuse. And so maybe specifically, I can mention we are looking at currently the beverages. We are also looking at takeaway, and we look uh, looking into also um, some uh, um, secondary transport uh, packaging. And and it's 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 actually very interesting that it it's it's not. At all costly, you have some upfront costs, but um, building the whole nationwide infrastructure would start already paying back uh, after three to five years. So I'm not talking about just you know the bottle itself. It's really the infrastructure for for uh, for returning it, for the washing, um, the whole system, uh, and and that's where we we think that um, are like the the, the biggest opportunity is to uh, to address the waste issue. So it really has to focus. So our main focus is predict that needs to be on, on first of all, of course, phasing out the things that we don't really need. So there, actually, the parliament um, failed us uh, because, for example, um, they, um, in terms of bans of certain types of packaging, they, um, unfortunately, industry uh, was able to make the case that uh, some some packaging like for the fruits and uh, vegetable is still necessary. So we will not able to phase out some of this packaging, which is totally unnecessary. Uh, there is no need, for example, for the put the plastics around uh, uh, bananas or, or apples. Um, so and, and, you know, so uh, this packaging could be easily phased out. Um, I, we think that around 20 percent of this this type of packaging is unnecessary. And then the reuse, yes, um, has a huge potential, particularly, I would say, for takeaway. It has some of the fastest um, um, break-even points, so only three years for the whole infrastructure. And then, of course, when we go uh, um, down the line, uh, of course, recycling uh, will, uh, will have to come in uh, still for the rest. And here, of course, we have... Um, we believe we have this kind of uh, dual um, approach. So first of all, is is the kind of we call it a, a, a winning a formula for achieving a high levels of separate uh, collection, and and that that's door to door collection combined with uh, pay as you throw, which is the gives the economic incentive for you to uh, to sort it uh, uh, the waste well uh, in in combination with DRS and mixed waste sorting. Um, so all these uh, four things together, they will help you to achieve uh, at least 90% separate collection. Well, it's not separate. I mean, collection rate, uh, material collection rate. Um, and, and, and 
and and of course uh, there also recycling comes in because obviously you need to collect but you also need to recycle it and for that to happen you need to have a uh, targets for recycled content um, and it's very important that you have quite ambitious level of uh, collection targets um, so I would say yes these are the key things Sam. yeah it was uh... Uh, interesting to also go through the press release from the uh, from Zero uh, Waste Europe, and uh, I was actually reading through what you talked about, and I think this was a good segue because you brought up the mixed sorting, um, and because the, I think the European Parliament has not made it mandatory for countries to adopt mixed waste sorting, and and it sort of got me thinking because uh, even within the Netherlands, which is where I'm based out of, uh, different municipalities have different ways in which they classify waste and then they say you know in 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 these uh, yellow color boxes or bins you can put in plastic waste and then you may have dry waste wet waste but uh, if you look at rotterdam for example uh, you don't have that you just have everything else and then you have carton and, and glass so how do you see municipalities not just in europe but even in other places where they are looking at this waste problem um how can they sort of maximize the sorting efficiency when it comes to, uh, you know, collecting waste? Should they go for a centralized approach with, uh, you know, waste, you know, consumers don't have to sort waste. Um, and then, you know, in a centralized location, it's sorted and then it goes to recycling and other applicable uh, facilities downstream. Or do you see it, you know, trickling down more towards the consumer side where consumers have to be thought or made aware of, okay, this is how you should actually be sorting waste to minimize uh, you know, waste being left untreated, for example. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, this is very interesting and it's very, uh, very uh, uh, also sometimes controversial, the discussion, let's say so. Um, in fact, we, uh, uh, we are uh, big promoters of separate collection and, and it, it always has to be the priority in our opinion. And, and the best way of doing it is to have door to door collection and in combination with uh, DRS, which is the, you know, mostly for the uh, beverages. But it could be also extended to some other types of packaging. Um, this has, this gives the highest level of collection rates. Um, but unfortunately, um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, uh, any type of separate collection is not perfect. So we uh, added another element, which is uh, um, how to also sort out the materials that are not captured by separate collection materials that end up in in, um, in so-called uh, mixed waste stream. And um, unfortunately, it's a quite a, a big amount of uh, materials that still end up because it's difficult. Yeah, it's uh, not everybody participate. Uh, uh, in, uh, in separate collection. Um, I live in Brussels, for example, now for, for the last eight years, and you see a lot of uh, recycled materials that are thrown into bins, um, in, in the wrong bins or in the bins which, uh, which are directly sent to incinerators. And if you look at this data uh, across Europe, uh, it's, it's very high, actually, in terms of uh, uh, particularly plastics. A lot of plastics, let's say half of the plastics, ends up not separate collected. Um, and these materials are currently, it's just currently just either landfill or incinerated, mostly mostly incinerated. So it's a big loss. Eh? So I want to maybe 
uh, touch on something that you mentioned earlier, and that's this question of recycling versus bio-based. Um, I'm going to read a quote. Um, we were particularly disappointed that the recycled content targets uh, for you know sensitive packaging have been reduced, and we uh, you know today's vote would allow the use of bio-based plastics and packaging only as a way to dilute the targets for recycled content. That was a quote from someone very upset, and I think it's someone who you probably don't agree with that much, and that was from, of course, Plastics Europe, uh, a large you know, plastics uh, sort of organization. They obviously want to prioritize recycling as uh, the, the key target. I guess, though, you know, in this sort of bio-based versus recycling versus other sorts of waste management. We talked about, you know, this idea of the waste hierarchy and recycling kind of being at a lower point of it, but in some cases it being allowed to supersede uh, reuse in in some of the legislative aspects here. There's this tension. Um, I think that in the grand scheme of things, biggest picture, you know, climate change and carbon emissions are probably the biggest sustainability challenge facing the world today. But the reality is that the carbon footprint of an individual piece of plastic packaging is extremely minimal, right? It's just not, when you think about where carbon emissions come from, um, plastic packaging, especially on a unit basis, just really isn't one of them, right? It's just it's just not, obviously, cumulatively, it's a big footprint. But, you know, there's, I think, a very legitimate case that the the burden of waste management produces more emissions, uh, whether it's through things like incineration or just, you know, the logistics associated with, with these plastic pieces of plastic packaging than ultimately like the actual, you know, carbon footprint of the material itself. So you have this tension where, you know, I think globally we really want to tackle this issue of carbon footprint, but in plastics, it seems like we're giving waste a higher priority. And then you have these things like, Oh, we need to put bio-based into plastics. And it's like, well, what are we prioritizing here and why? So I guess I'm just curious at a high level for your read on this challenge of, you know, and how we should be thinking about prioritizing carbon emissions and, and plastic waste. And then also on the specific substitution concept that's been sort of put forward in the, in the PPWR, you know, how you're, how you're thinking about that. And, um, you know, if if you're going to team up with uh, Plastics Europe to put out a joint statement calling for this <laughs> to be reversed or whatever. <laughs> in in fact, actually, we we did agree uh, on this particular issue with them. Um, what, what we want to have is to have a specific targets um, for the materials uh, for recy- recycled content for the fossil based materials separate from uh, from targets for the bio based. And again. Um, um, the reason for that is is that we we do want um, that those fossil materials are recycled, and it should not lead to that bio base somehow starts undermining the targets for recycling those fossil materials. Um, but in our overall strategy, um, again, doc, when when I mentioned the you know the carbon budget for plastics, we um, we realized that when it comes to um, after the reduction and reuse, um, uh, 50% should be fossil-based, and then another 50% in the long term should come from bio-based plastics. We're still, you know, trying to figure out exactly what kind of feedstocks should be used for that. Uh, because um, I mean, yeah, 
it's a, it's a, a, I think it's a difficult issue. Um, it's not clear like where exactly it should come from, uh, but it, it does look like it's, it, it, it could be more sustainable. In, um, so yeah, um, uh, again, coming from back to the package interacting that we did agree with uh, Plastics Europe on, on this issue. Uh, so we wanted to have a uh, separate targets. I wanted to kind of pull back and say, you know, looking at everything we talked about, we have these ambitious goals, whether it's 90% collection, you know, any of the recycling targets, I guess, you know, do you think that we're on track? Are we doing enough to meet those goals? And where do you see things, you know, five years from now, if, if we, or maybe even a year from now, if we get you back on the podcast, um, I'm just curious as you think the, the progress that we're going to make and are we making it fast enough? Well, unfortunately, I, I think, uh, I, I think um, you know, um, I think our press release said that this legislation did not have the change that we expected for the, for the time. <laughs> um, uh, for the reasons that it didn't really address the issue of um, reduction and, and, and reuse, because it's, it's not enough that we just start recycling more. Recycling doesn't, doesn't at all address the issue of... Uh, of uh, waste generation. In fact, you know, none of the recycling systems are are perfect. So, I I I don't think it it actually gives us the tools to address the problem eh, that we have, the the ever growing waste generation. Eh? And it's very interesting. Um, um the recent uh, Eurostat data on packaging eh, it really shows that packaging waste is is growing and growing. And, and most of the packaging now nowadays is is paper packaging, uh, and only then uh, uh, plastics are actually quite behind. Uh, um, uh, so it's it's we are seeing this switch to paper packaging, but unfortunately, particularly when it comes to food contact materials, it doesn't get recycled at all. Um, so it it ends up disposed. Yeah. So I mean, it, 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 the the paper point is an interesting uh, one there. I mean, what would you you know, as I think you know, like at Lux, we work with a lot of companies in industry, both consumer packaged goods and the chemicals companies, plastic companies that are that are producing a lot of these raw materials. Like if you were if you were to advise them, like what do you think that those I mean, obviously you'd like them to be, you know, focusing on their sustainability mm-hmm. initiatives and, and, and all of that, but what what do you think, you know, they still are trying to find viable businesses. What would your advice uh, or recommendation to them be about how they can, you know, try to align themselves better to where the circular economy, the plastics economy is, is going or, or should be going. Uh, You mean uh, particularly for plastics? Yeah, Yeah, particularly for, well, for, for, for waste, I guess in general, but plastic is kind of waste in general. I mean, if the message is get out of plastics, you know, that that's uh that's a fine message too. But like you mentioned, there are challenges with other materials. So yeah, it's a good question. What, what you'd advise there? Yeah, I, I, for us, it's very, very clear. When I mean, uh, our, our focus is on reuse. So get out of single-use packets, particularly packaging. I, I'm not talking about automobile and, and some other types of uh, plastics and other materials, but for the packaging, I think um, there is a really strong case for for moving towards reuse. And and you know, there's a, there's a lot happening in particularly in Europe. I, I don't know how you know how how's the situation in the US, but um, 
especially after the single use plastics directive, um, there was a lot of movement happening. And then it, I, I must say that, uh, you know, there was a lot of really initiatives happening in, in Europe. And then it kind of like a little paralyzed. Uh, so we were really hoping that the package interactive will give the right incentive now to, to even kind of like to give this impetus for, for the industry and, and the companies to, to continue doing that. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it, it, it became a little bit watered down. So I, I, I really strongly encourage to look into their uh, reuse in the long term. Um, it's actually good business. Uh, I think our reports we, we, it shows it, it's it's not it's it's not only better for climate but it's also good good in terms of money, um, and of course the only problem is that you have this upfront cost. Um, but I mean anybody who's smart knows that you know money is not made in uh, in one year in two years it it's always done in long term. So I uh, that's my recommendation. And 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 yeah, let's just move move away from uh, you know. Uh, disposable uh, things. Uh. I get all my grapes individually wrapped in, in plastic. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we'll, we'll yeah. have a discussion. I think the, the hardest sell, those of us with kids, I think know that uh, it, it can be a hard sell sometimes. They really they really love their, their individual yogurt packs, or at least my daughter does. But uh, Yannick, I want to thank you so much for, for jumping on the podcast. Um, you know, Lux. Maybe we may be doing our next event in Brussels, so uh, maybe we can we can see you there and and certainly have some 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 good discussions on this topic as well. Um, but yeah, I want to I want to thank you for coming on and and sharing your insights with us. It's really fantastic. Yeah. And thank you, thank you all. Uh, thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Mike and Karik. Um, thank you for having and having this discussion. And uh, and let's stay in touch. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.